Welcome to the No Degree Podcast. This is your host, Janayat Iqbal, and today's guest is the definition of no degree. He is one of the hardest working people I have ever met, and this man can do anything he sets his mind to. JT McCormick barely graduated high school, but that never stopped him. He overcame every obstacle that came his way and earned everything he ever got in his life. JT never forgot where he came from and is one of the most genuine people I have ever come across. From scrubbing toilets to the CEO of Scribe Media, this episode is a gem and worth listening to multiple times. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash no degree. Every contribution is appreciated. Remember, this show is impossible without you. Let's get this show started. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today, I have the definition of no degree, the wonderful JT McCormick. What's up, JT? My man, what is going on? Give us a little bit of background of what you're doing today if, for people who don't know. Man, I am now the president and CEO of a publishing company. And there are still people trying to figure out how that happened, considering I can't spell and I can't tell you an adverb from an adjective. But man, we have been incredibly fortunate that our biggest book for 2019, we published David Goggins' book. He had the most sought after book in America, second only to Michelle Obama. We literally just published last month, we published the book for the Nobel Committee is in the Nobel Peace Prize. We published a book for them. So we've had a ton of success. We've published over 1,600 authors we've worked with. I would say the highlight of it all is last year, we were rated the number one company culture in America by Entrepreneur Magazine. It's been a fun ride. Let's sort of take it back from the beginning because you literally came from the bottom. If someone has it worse than you, then I really can't truly imagine what their life is like. And you took it to the literal top and you did it. You just worked hard. I remember when you were in school, time was tough, right? You weren't always the best student. So well, did you really learn anything? Man, that was that's an understatement. wasn't the best. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it was the worst. Yeah, man. It was. I remember I was 15 years old and my mother took me to get tested and I was testing on a fifth and sixth grade level, man. It was, it was rough. I didn't graduate high school. I had to go to summer school to get my high school diploma, finish out taking out remedial classes. And I always make this joke with people. Some people would call that a GED. Damn it, it says high school diploma on it. I got a high school diploma. So, but yeah, there's no college degree, man. I don't have the academic credentials. You know that at the beginning, I appreciate what you said and hard work. That's, that's what, what I put in. And so I truly believe, especially in the United States, hard work's everything. You came from a very interesting background because you grew up in the 70s and your father was black, your mom was white, and she grew up in an orphanage. And you sort of dealt the worst of racism. You didn't have anybody to confide in. So <laughs> black people didn't like me because I was half white and white people didn't like me because I'm half black. And I would. So whenever someone wants to dive into a race conversation, I said, Let me, let's really go into some racism when no one likes you. It was not a good look in the 70s. Not only did people dislike me. They disliked my mother. You know, I, I don't know. You maybe need to bleep this out. But, you know, my mother was constantly called a nigger lover because she she had a child with, with a black man. And it was not a good look in the 70s. 
What did you pick from your parents? Because I know that they were two sort of different types, but you sort of seem to combine both their positive traits. My dad, he was a hustler. He was the definition of, of a hustler. And regardless of what some people don't like to hear this, but I learned a lot of my communication skills watching my dad put women on a street corner. You have to have a certain gift in communication to convince a woman to go stand on a corner, sell her body, and then you get all the money. And I watched my, my father's communication. And, and what was strange about it is everyone loved him. Even the prostitutes loved him. But he spoke to everyone. And I say this, bear with me. He showed respect and was kind to everyone. And I know people are like, wait a minute, your dad was a pimp. How can he be respect? Even his prostitutes loved him. And it was the damnedest thing. He just, people gravitated towards him. He always shook everyone's hand. He always said hello to everyone. And he instilled that in me. That was one of the greatest lessons my, my father ever gave me was to show respect, be kind, and say hello to everyone. And can you share how you have that experience of why you say hello to everyone? Uh, one weekend or one of those rare weekends that my dad had me for the weekend, he, we were at the grocery store, no clue why, but we're walking down the frozen food section. I'll never forget this man. And a little girl walks by me and she says, hello, Javon. My, my real name's Javon. And I didn't say anything. I put my head down. I was shy. Man, all of a sudden, I got this massive blow to the back of my head, and my face falls to the ground. I hit the floor. My nose is bleeding. I get snatched up, and I got a forearm stuck in my neck, and my dad's like two inches from my face. And he says to me, I don't care who it is. You say hello, show respect, and be kind to everyone. And man, that lesson stuck with me. I was eight or nine years old at the time. I've been walking around with that lesson ever since. I say hello to everyone. And in fact, I'll take it a step further. I'm actually more kind to service industry people than I am C-suite executives, business owners. Man, those people have enough people kissing up to them. But we tend to, especially in our society, we tend to overlook the service people, the the, the hotel housekeeper, the restroom attendant at the airport. I show those people love because rarely does anyone else even acknowledge them. So I always th say, tell them thank you for their, their service. Thank you. The restroom looks great. I leave a tip for the housekeeping at the hotel. All came from my father. So your father had great communication skills and I know he had several businesses. What do you feel he lacked to sort of take him from the next level? Because he was always caught up in that lifestyle, right? Because at one point, he tried to work legitimate job, but the money's just not the same, especially for someone with his skill set. I made a joke when I went back to my father's funeral with my younger brother. My father lacked execution. He was one of those people that was always about to do something. We would joke about it with my cousins, my brother. I'm about, I'm about you know, I'm about to do this. You know, I'm about to do that. I'm, I'm about to get the new Jordans. I'm about to get this new Range Rover. Always about to do something. But never the, the follow through, the execution wasn't there. What I realized is it's the consistency and the execution that take you to the next level. You, you and I were talking about this just a few minutes ago. As a kid, there were three words I eliminated from my vocabulary, hope, wish, and luck. And the reason why, when I was a child and I would hope my father would come pick me up, he never showed up. When I went to school and I would hope there was something to eat when I got home, 
It didn't produce anything. And then when I would wish there was food in the refrigerator, it never produced anything. And then luck, I just don't believe in it. There's no luck because there, there wasn't anything that was lucky in my childhood. So I eliminated those three words and I replaced those words with belief and execution. And I got challenged on this. You're, you're going to love this. I got challenged on this. A pastor friend of mine, he said to me, well, wait a minute, JT. He goes, man, I preach hope in my sermon, you know, every week. And I said, okay, do you want me to hope there's a God or do you want me to believe there's a God? And he goes, wow. And so that's kind of my mindset or is my mindset on, I believe if you believe it, it will force execution. You can't believe something and then not go do anything about it. You can drive through a nice neighborhood and wish you had one of the big houses, but if you believe you can have one, it's going to force you to go out and execute to get one. Now let's go to your mom. What'd you learn from your mom? Because she instilled a lot of that work ethic in you. I always said this about my mother. One of the things that I was most proud of her for is, you know, my mom had me and she had no business having a child. It is what it is. I, I don't mind saying it, but she should have never have given birth to me, given her circumstances. And my mother was an orphan. She didn't learn anything in the orphanage. Here she was out in the, the world and, and she couldn't even take care of herself, let alone a child. What I did learn from my mother, and I'm really proud of her for this, my mom didn't go off and repeat the mistake. She didn't go have six more children. You know, she had one and she learned, okay, not doing that again. Shouldn't have had him. I won't go have three, four, five more, more children. I was always proud of that. And I feel like that in itself taught me a lesson of, okay, mistakes are okay. Don't repeat the mistakes. Learn from the mistakes. Grow from the mistakes. But even though my mom would come up short sometimes, I also learned consistency. She always did what she had to do to try to make ends meet. And, and my mother said this to me, man, this, this is a powerful thing she said to me. Sometimes necessity has an ugly face. I know what she meant by that because she did what she had to do to make ends meet and, and try to feed her child. And then, like I said, although she came up short sometimes and we went to bed hungry, she was consistent. I, I watched my mom sweep out the steps to the public housing we lived in to get $10 off of our, our rent. Matter of fact, I still have the receipt. It's over on my desk here in, in the office. I keep the receipt on my desk that shows my mom only had $10 to pay on $145 monthly rent. She had 10 bucks. That was it. And I keep that there as a reminder of where I come from and, and what I've managed to, to accomplish. But I learned consistency from, from my mother. She, if nothing else, she consistently did her best to her abilities. And I know you had another influential figure, your uncle Bobby. What'd you learn from uncle Bobby? Man, Uncle Bobby was a beast, man. <laughs> um, Uncle Bobby really instilled in me attention to detail. He instilled in me punctuality. I'll tell the story real fast. Uh, UBT time. On the last occasion when I got out of juvenile, I went and lived with my Uncle Bobby. And my Uncle Bobby, we were going on church vacation. Church vacation. Friday night comes around and my Uncle Bobby says, okay, tomorrow we're leaving at 10 a.m. sharp. And if my Uncle Bobby said something, he followed through. So he taught me follow through as well. So my Uncle Bobby, it's it's 9.30 the next morning, Saturday morning. We're supposed to be getting ready to leave at 10. My aunt says, hey, Bobby, I'm going to run up to the store and get those uh, cashews that you like. And my Uncle Bobby looks at her and he says, no, 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 no. 
you forgot something and you're trying to chalk it up with me. He said, I'm leaving at 10 a.m. So all my cousins go with my aunt and they go up to the store. I had already figured out, okay, the person with the money is Uncle Bobby. I'm staying here. So, so I stay with my Uncle Bobby. It's about five till. And I run down to the end of the driveway. I'm looking like, oh, my God, where's my aunt? I run up and I grab my football. My Uncle Bobby says, hey, son, I know what you're doing. He said, let's go. Man, we get in the car. 10 a.m. We're sitting there. He looks at his watch. He leaves. He leaves my aunt and my cousins for church vacation. And we leave. We finally get to our destination. And four or five hours later, I'll fast forward a little bit. Four or five hours later, guess who shows up? It's my aunt and my cousins. And my aunt is livid. And she's tearing off into my Uncle Bobby's butt. And he's just standing there looking at her. She's going at it for like five minutes and she stops and he goes, are you finished? And she goes, yes. He looks at her with the calmest of face and he says, I said we were leaving at 10 o'clock. In amazement, like this man really follows through on his word. Although that's a harsh lesson and I will never leave my family for church vacation. It stuck with me on punctuality and then it stuck with me on follow through. And unfortunately, We live in a society where something that simple is actually very easy to succeed and achieve upon. Do what you say you're going to do. Follow through. Be on time. Think think of it this way. Last piece to this. No one's ever gotten fired for being early. No one's ever missed an opportunity for being early. But I know of a whole lot of situations where people have been fired for being late and missed an opportunity for being late. So be on time, be early. And my Uncle Bobby would always say, if you're on time, you're late. Show up 10 minutes early. I was like, wow. And that stuck with me. Let's go to your school experience. So did you really get anything out of school or your life was just, it was just too much that you couldn't really absorb a lot? Man, I I can tell you what I received from school. Third grade, Mrs. Dedek said, there are no dumb or stupid questions. From that day forward, man, I've been asking for shit ever since. <laughs> I, I will ask for everything. And it taught me the worst you can say to me is no. That's it. And for me, I just adopted the mindset of no just means not right now. You know, I'm, I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to ask again next quarter. And it really helped me out in sales because I figured, okay, if you say no, I can pick up the phone and call someone else. So many people have asked me, well, JT, why does no not bother you? And I said, look, When I was a child, I would come home from school and I would ask if we're going to eat dinner. And then I was told, no, that hurt because I couldn't change it. Someone saying, no, they won't do business with me. Okay, I'll call someone else. I will keep calling until I find a yes. School itself, man, no. I got Miss Dedek. I got Mrs. Porter. She used to throw shoes at me. I was a freshman and she used to throw shoes at me or chalk or whatever she could get a hold of. But here was what I took from it. She never threw it out of anger. She never threw it looking at me with with just disappointment. She threw it at me out of love because she felt that I was not living up to my abilities. And I always appreciated that, is that she would throw a shoe because you weren't living up to your abilities. Literally out of school, man, Mrs. Dedek, Mrs. Porter, much like my life, I remember situations that influenced me, but the standard addition, subtraction, man, 
I got nothing. You know, if you would have said entrepreneurship to me when I was 15, I would have thought you were speaking a foreign language. I pre-algebra, calculus, trigonometry, man, I I got nothing on on those. It's, you know, but I said this to someone uh, recently, I've never seen calculus on a deposit slip. No, you're right. You're right. So your dad did things in, you know, you saw him do illegal things. A lot of people tend to follow the cycle that they grow up in, right? Because that's what you see. That's all you know. What sort of got you to sort of take his good side, but not really absorb the negative? This recently hit me. Actually, in 2019, this actually isn't in the book. I, I only in 2019 came to openly admit this. My dad, when I was with him for the short time, he came home one day. It was like two in the morning. I don't even know why I was awake with my brothers and sisters, but he leaned on the bookshelf. And he said, don't ever be like me. And he left it at that. He said, don't ever, don't ever do this to yourself. Don't ever be like me. And what jumped out to me is all I knew of my dad was he was a pimp. He was a drug dealer. He had 23 children. He didn't take care of any of us. So all of those things, when he said that, those are the things that I said, okay, so I guess he's saying, don't do these things. That coupled with the fact that I was in and out of juvenile three different times and that correction officer that told me if I came back there again, I was going to man prison. Those things kept me from going down the path of the the illegal route. Now, more importantly, I'll share this with you. My dad also said to us, the only difference between him and the CEO of Budweiser was our society chose to make alcohol, that drug, legal. And he would always say this to us. He would say it to his friends. I'd hear them talk about, yeah, the only difference between me and the CEO of Budweiser is our government made their drug legal. And that really jumped out for me because he would go into a deep dive of his proof points. And, you know, he talked about how prohibition used to be in our country. So alcohol was illegal, but then we chose to make it legal so we could tax it. And then I'll be damned. Here I am, you know, 40 years later, and now we've legalized weed. And I'm like, wow, you know, he, he was actually onto something. So it's, it's very interesting. The business lessons he taught me, and, and I'll share this last one with you. A lot of people don't like to hear this. What I also learned from watching the drug game is every drug dealer knows the first rule. The first rule is the first sample is for free. Well, if we take that over to the pharmaceutical industry, what do pharmaceutical reps do? They go out and they pass out free samples. It's the same drug game. And I would actually argue with anyone, the pharmaceutical drug game is broken because too many people are getting paid out of that. Where in the streets, you've got the corner dealer You got the person who may kind of own the city at whatever level. And then you got the drug cartel that's supplying the whole piece there. But there's like three, maybe four pieces to the drug game on the street. The drug game and the pharmaceutical rep, man, you've got the rep. You've got the doctor that's getting paid. You've got Walgreens that's getting paid. You've got the insurance company that's giving. So many people are getting, but it all starts with what? Free samples. It's the same game on the streets. I took a lot of the things that I learned on the streets and I've been very fortunate and blessed that I was able to take them over to the business side of things, the the legal piece. But I'll argue with anyone, you've got a lot of phenomenal business people in prison right now that understand business on a high level 
they just went down the illegal path. Okay. What was your sort of first experience working like? And it could be even if it was, I remember it was you working with your Uncle Bobby and he made you work for a few dollars. Uncle Bobby used to own rental houses like duplexes. And this is back in the day when they were Section 8. And Section 8, you know, is is free housing or low-income housing. And so the government would send Uncle Bobby his check each month. When people would move out, man, they would leave these houses in just shambles. There would be dirty diapers stacked up, rotten food, roaches, rats everywhere. And my Uncle Bobby would take me and some of my cousins, and he would make us go clean these houses while he wouldn't play golf. And he'd give us two dollars for the, you know, we were there like six hours cleaning this garbage, and he'd give us two bucks. What really jumped out to me is he would show up. Here you had just nasty homes. We've cleaned it up. He would walk over to a, a corner and he'd look in and he'd say, "Hey, you left some dirt here." He's and he would say this: "Attention to detail." Okay, did you not see the rest of the house? And he would say, "Look, the big picture is great." But that corner is dirty, and the corner represents the big picture. He taught me attention to detail. I remember there was a crack in the window, and we didn't replace it because it was a small crack. And he said, that crack is representative of the whole. So attention to detail, because that speaks to the whole body of work that you're representing. And man, that stuck with me. So when I look back, school did not teach me. And I say this respectfully, school did not teach me much at all. There were life lessons that helped me. Attention to detail. How you are in the office, how you are when no one's looking, is how you are all the time. And those lessons came from my dad, my uncle Bobby, my my mom, and then other jobs and, and career things that I've had along the way. Would there be a way for you to learn that stuff in school? Would Do you think that would be possible? You asked for it. <laughs> I have this belief, man. When I look at, look back at my career and I say look back like 82 or something, but when I look at what has helped me be most successful in life, it's not so much what someone told me. Sometimes it was what people showed me. You know, my uncle Bobby showed me attention to detail. So I have this desire to go back to our educational system and just think about this for a second. We know. It's, it's the statistical fact, 40% of all graduating high school students will not go to college. Regardless of where you fall in the economic ladder, 40% of all students will not go to college. But we have the audacity as a society that we expect you to go out into the world and be a productive member of society and contribute. How am I supposed to contribute when I don't even know what to do? How am I supposed to fill out an application if I don't know how? How am I supposed to go out and know what to do for a resume when I don't know how. So for me, I want to go back to your freshman year of high school and I want to implement a class called show and tell. Now, I don't mean show and tell like my six-year-old where she takes in her favorite toy and she tells you about it. Show and tell. Show me how to shake a hand. Tell me why it's important. Show me to firm up my handshake. Look you in the eye. Say good morning. Yes, sir. Thank you. May I please? Show and tell. Show me a pharmaceutical rep. Tell me how I can become one. Show me a wealth advisor, a certified financial planner. Tell me how I can become one. Because a lot of people don't know, you can be a certified financial planner and never go to college. Show and tell is what I would go back into school. And from your freshman year through your senior year, you take a class called show and tell. I think that's a great way because a lot of times you got you to gotta see it. 
to believe it. You got to see someone. I'm pretty sure once you started getting out in the workforce, you're like, well, people get paid for that. And it opened your mind to so many jobs. Now, your first job out of high school, what was that? Man, I cleaned toilets at a restaurant called Po Folks. And every day I worked from nine to three. My job was to come in first thing in the morning and clean the toilets from the night before. And they were filthy. They were nasty. But hey, I, I had already gone down the Uncle Bobby clean his house route. So I was used to it by that point. But that was my first job. And, and I took pride in it. You know, I was a busboy also once, once the, the restaurant opened. And I remember just looking, you know this, if you and I go to lunch right now and we pull out the chair, there may be crumbs on the chair. I took pride in the fact of when you sat at one of my tables that I cleaned, the chairs were washed off. The salt and shaker or salt and pepper shaker were, were washed off. My table was clean. And it wasn't just that the table was clean. The whole experience of you sitting at the place that I cleaned was clean. Again, goes back to Uncle Bobby and attention to detail. I wanted you to sit at the table and say, you know what? All of this is clean. And, and I had this in my mind. My, again, my, my dad gave this to me. And I've only admitted that th this year in 2019, my dad said to me when I was a kid, whatever you do in life, be the best at it. If you are going to sweep the streets for a living, be the best street sweeper. Now, he could have gave us a better example, but that was the example of sweeping the streets. And that stuck with me. And I remember standing over those toilets and saying to myself, okay, if this is my job right now, I am going to be the very best toilet cleaner in the city of San Antonio and the state of Texas. I always made sure my toilets were sparkling. And from that day forward, everything I do I do it with attention to detail. I do it to the best of my ability. And, and I put my all into anything that I do. What was the next opportunity? And how much were you getting paid? Not a lot. Minimum wage? Two bucks an hour at that point? Uh, well, I, you know, maybe it may, man, I'm not that old. Um, it may have been like 525, something like that. Yeah, not too far from what it still is, which is mind blowing. But yeah, it wasn't, it was, it was like four or five dollars. And then what was your next opportunity after that? Man, I worked at a at Nationwide Insurance. I was the mail boy. I pushed the cart around. I delivered the mail, and I was a filer, so I had to file papers all day. You talk about some tedious, boring work, but again, it was my job, so I was going to do it to the best of my ability. The greatest thing that came from Nationwide Insurance, Ben, they had a lunch and learn, and it, you got a free lunch, and that's what I saw on the sign. It said free lunch and learn. It was going over 401k. And I didn't even know what a 401k was. And it was like, okay, I just saw free lunch. So I was like, hey, I'm going. I went and I heard the two greatest words in the history of mankind, compound interest. That was my first introduction into investing. And man, I, I fell in love. From, from that point forward, I've always invested my money, tried to make my money, make money for me. That is the greatest thing that came from that job was I got to go to that free lunch and all I wanted was the free sandwich, man. Okay. Hey, look, sometimes it just starts with some food, free food. Exactly. Usually leads to good things. When you work, did you set any records? Because you're always trying to set records where you go. Like it's Always, man. But there's still a part of me. You read the book, so you know this. There's a part of me to this day. I still feel bad for this. I worked side by side with a lady. She was married. I, I was probably 1920 at the time. This lady was like 34. She was married, had a child, and she was doing the same job I was. And I remember she pulled me to the side one day because I was competitive, man. I was just cutthroat, ruthless. 
I just wanted to be the best, no matter what, I was going to be the best. So I always knew that I outperformed her and I would file, I deliver more mail. And she pulled me to the side one day and she goes, Hey, could you slow down, please? And I looked at her with this face, like, slow down for what? And she goes, I need this job. I need the benefits. I need the insurance. And I didn't really know at that age what all that meant. But I do remember just looking at her like, I'm slowing down for you. Get on my level. I don't have any regret, but I have a little remorse because now that, you know, I have a family, I understand. I'll be damned if I was going to let somebody be better than me or even let you be in the, the arena of me. I was going to do that job to the best of my ability. And I was going to be number one because I had figured out there's not a whole lot of academic gifts going on here. You know, biology, math, science, yeah, I got nothing. But I knew I could control my work ethic. And that was my golden ticket out of my circumstances. I know that when you worked there, there was a black CEO. What impact did that have on you? A huge one. It was the first time that I had seen a black man in a suit in a business environment. I had never seen that before. The only black men I saw in suits were pimps and drug dealers or, you know, my, my Uncle Bobby when we went to church. But I had never seen a black man in a suit in a business environment. That was the first time, man. And it was impressionable. I mean, the, the biggest takeaway I had from him was I watched how he conducted himself. I, I've been big on observation. That, that was something that also came from my childhood, just always paying attention to your surroundings many times because that's how you survive. Here I was in this new environment, and every time someone would ask him, how are you doing today, sir? He would always say, tremendous, tremendous. Every time, hey, Mr. Mayo, how are you doing? Tremendous. And I thought, that's pretty cool because... He says tremendous. You don't really know how he's feeling that day. He could be having a bad day. He could be having a great day, but he lets you know he's always tremendous. So I adopted my own word that day. My word, my word became excellent. So even to this day, when I walk into the office, people already know. They're like, JT, how you doing? I go, you already know how I am. They're like, excellent. I'm always excellent. And I don't say it to be fake. I, I truly mean it, man. I don't do negativity. I don't do... If you're a pessimistic person, don't come around me, man. There's enough negativity in the world. People who say, thank God it's Friday, ah, get away from me. If you, if you are in a career where you have to say, thank God it's Friday, get the hell out. Go, go find a different career or at least be working your way to something different. But I don't do negativity, man. I want to find the positives. Even in my just chaotic background as a child, I want to find the positives that benefit me. So he was always tremendous, man. I'm always excellent. Now, what, what was the next move for you? Man, I got to uh, go into payday loans and I got to, I, I remember, so, so I was working out, I used to do a little personal training and one of the guys that I was personal training, he said, you should go work for my dad. And I said, man, I've been to your house. I don't know what you guys do. I said, I know you got a huge house and a lot of cars. I said, as far as I know, you can be a drug dealer. And he goes, no, my, my dad's not a drug dealer. I went to work for this gentleman. And what really intrigued me was all he had was a high school diploma. So I said, oh, wow. Okay, he's built this. And all he had was a high school diploma. And my mind was, he did it. I knew it. I remember sitting with him. And he started with one payday loan office. And now he had like over 400 of them. And it jumped out to me, like, wow, he started from the bottom and, and really moved up. He said I could work for him, but I had to start in the proofing department. Man, you talk about some of the most boring, tedious work ever. All you do 
all day, eight hours a day, is you take a deposit slip and you take a computer report and you check and make sure the deposit slip matches a report. That's all you did all day. Make sure the dollars matched on both sides. So I'm in there and it's like three months in and I'm like, okay, this is horrible. And I went and I asked the manager, I said, how many reports have been proofed in a day? And she said to me, 42. I said, okay. So I left, man. I remember driving home on the highway. I can even take myself there right now. And I said, okay, tomorrow I'm smashing that record. I'm going in and man, I did 71 the next day. The next day, 72. About 60 days after that, maybe 30, 45 days after that, Mr. Gentry, love that man. He calls and he was a, he was a country guy. He goes, Joe Vaughn calls me from the, the front of the office because my, my name's Javon. He, and, but he never called me Javon. He called me Joe Vaughn. Joe Vaughn, come here. So I go in, I sit down and he goes, hell, son, obviously you don't want to be doing that the rest of your career. What do you want to do? And he had this picture behind him. It was him and the vice presidents of the company. And I looked. He asked me what I wanted. So I said, hey, I want to be in the picture. And he goes, yeah, son, you got some balls on you, don't you? I said, hey, you asked me what I wanted. He said, I tell you what, I'm going to give you an opportunity to go out and learn the business. And I'm going to send you to different offices and you, you can learn every all aspects about the offices. So I jumped on it, man. And, and I was going out. I was killing it. I'd stay in these offices till 11 o'clock at night. And people wouldn't know I was there. I was doing it on my own accord. You know, I could have left and gone to the hotel room and hung out. But what am I going to do in the hotel room? Watch TV? So I stayed in these offices so I could learn the business inside and out. I'm like, man, this is a great opportunity to learn how this all this works. I had done that for about six months. And he comes to me one day and he says, hell, son, you've done great. Do you want to go to Louisiana, Las Vegas, or Portland, Oregon? I had never been to Portland, Oregon. And he said, okay, I'll send you up there so you can go and, and see the city. Man, I got off the plane and I saw the trees. I smelled the air and it was January. So that's like the worst time period to be in Portland. And I called him from the airport and I said, I want to move here. I said, sign me up. I said, you can put me back on the plane now. Just send me here. And he gave me the opportunity at 23 years old. And, and, and I say this with respect. Let me back up. No one's ever given me anything. If you hired me, it's because you had a role that needed to be filled. Because if I didn't perform, you could have equally have fired me. I've earned every opportunity that I've ever gone into. And the way I earned those opportunities is I made it a point to learn as much as I could and outwork anybody that they came across my path. Let's back up. That opportunity presented itself. And he said, okay, you're going to move to Portland, Oregon. I was 23 years old. I had three offices when I got there and I was a, a regional vice president of payday loans. Okay. So what caused you to get out and do the next opportunity? Man, I had been there three years and I got there. We had three offices. Man, I got to tell you the story as well, real quick as well, because this, this goes into the, the learning. Man, I got to Portland. I had been there 30 days. And it's January, it's cold. And, you know, I'm still trying to figure out the city. I'm 23 years old. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got managers. I've never managed people. Everybody's older than me. 30 days after I'm there, Mr. Gentry calls me up and he goes, hell, son, how you doing? I said, I'm doing great, Mr. Gentry. He said, okay, good. I want you to go to Eugene, Oregon and open an office. I said, yes, sir. He goes, you need anything for me? No, sir. 
hung up the phone, sat back in my chair, and I said to myself, oh, shit, how am I going to open an office? I don't know how to open an office. What am I going to do? And I remember saying to myself, okay, well, step one, you probably need to find out where Eugene, Oregon is. <laughs> and all I did was go through a step-by-step process. Okay, step number one, where's Eugene, Oregon? Step number two, drive to Eugene, Oregon. Step number three, I got to find an office. That took me some time. I didn't know what a commercial realtor was. I saw a sign on the window, said for lease. I called the number. This person ended up helping me find a spot eventually. And then I got the office space. I was like, cool, got the space. Now what do I do? And I remember standing in this empty building. I go, well, oh, wow, I got three offices in Portland that look just like this. So I'll make them look just like this. And and I developed a checklist for myself. So I got there. I had three offices. When I left three years later, I had eight. I had opened four more on my own and bought out two competitors. And But what made me leave is one day a lady came in. And the way you make money in the payday loan is you keep people in the loan. You you never let people pay it off. So a lady was coming in to pay on her $100 loan, man, $100. Think about it. If you've got to borrow $100, the hell are you ever going to pay that? So she was coming in and it was a white lady. She had her little son with her and I could tell he was mixed race. He had curly hair brown skin. And she came in and she was going to make a payment on her loan. And I remember after I took her payment, walking back to my office in tears because it reminded me of me and my mother when I was a kid. This woman was trying to pay on $100. She had this little mixed little boy and it just hit me hard, man. And I said, I I can't do this anymore. I'm keeping people trapped. Payday loans, all due respect to Mr. Gentry, because that was a hell of an opportunity, man. Literally, I can say it out loud. I love that man. That was an opportunity like no other for a 23-year-old kid. He uh, allowed me to to go up there and, and perform, but I, I just couldn't stay in it, man. It, it hit me hard that 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 lady was trapped in, in that loan and, and just seeing her and her son just really, it, it hit me that that was me and my mom. What was next? That Now you learned a lot. You had a lot more skills. What came next? I moved back to San Antonio no job, but I had a lot of money, no job. And I moved back and I remember, man, this is really going to show my age. I want to say it was like 90, 97, something somewhere between there, late 90s. I broke open the newspaper and started looking in the classifieds. And said, yeah, it's old school. So I found a place that was, I looked at it and it was a mortgage company and they were looking for a loan processor. And so I figured, hmm, I don't know things about mortgages. People buy a house, I'm going to do this. So I started applying and, and sending out a resume and I stopped by places. And, and so a lady gave me an opportunity. She cracked the door open, brought me in. I learned everything mortgage, became a loan processor. Then I left there, went to Countrywide Home Loans and became an account executive. Man, learned all things mortgage, mortgage-backed securities, CDOs, you name it. I knew all things uh, mortgage. And and I got to say this, man, pause right there because I, I worked at Countrywide Home Loans and I know a lot of people look down upon Countrywide because of the credit crisis. I had the phenomenal opportunity right after my book came out. Obviously, I was here at Scribe and we had a book launch party. One of our freelancers that works with us, she was at the book launch party and she comes up to me. She goes, hey, I read your book. It was great. She goes, question. You worked at Countrywide. And I lit up. I was like, yeah, I worked there. I loved it. It was great. Angelo Mazzello. I said, 
greatest person ever. He started that company on a card table in front of the courthouse in California, just him on a card table. I said, now he's the, he built the largest home loan lender in the world. I said, what a hell of a story. I went on and on about Countrywide. She goes, damn, you know a lot about Angelo Mazzello. I said, yeah, I studied him. She goes, that's my grandfather. And I was like, what? And so fast forward, she arranged that I got to go to Angelo Mazzello's house and I walk in and he's got a copy of my book on his coffee table. He read the book. He gave me the whole history of Countrywide. I got to hang out with him and spend time. Man, that was one of the highlights of my career, given that I was working for his company, lighting it up, being successful. And here I was in front of the man that that I was working for. So that, that was a, a great piece there. But yeah, man, I was in all things mortgage. And then obviously the credit crisis happened. Mortgage industry turned around. I remember when it was going on. No, no BS. My mother called me up and she said, um, did you have anything to do with that? I said, a little bit. <laughs> no, it happened. So what happened when the mortgage industry sort of happened? That crisis. When the mortgage industry went under, man, I went broke. I was doing dumb things with my money. I was immature, wasn't smart, arrogant, cocky, thought I knew everything. And man, I was negative broke. I, I even make the joke to people. I said, I wasn't just broke. I was negative broke. I had to go borrow money. And one of the mo most humbling things, I had to borrow some money from my stepdad and from my best friend to pay my rent, man. And that was humbling. More humbling than that was I had $10 in quarters in my hand. It was, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock at night and I needed to put gas in my car. And I wouldn't do it during the day because I didn't have any cash. I went at night and I remember walking into the cashier and I put my quarters on the counter and I said, can I have $10 on number seven? Man, I'll never even forget that. We got $10 on number seven. And I'm walking back out to my car and I remember saying to myself, damn, how did I get here? You know, all of that money, look where you are, what's going on. And, and I'll say to you, man, it was one of the looking back, you know, when you're in the moment, you don't always see it. It was one of the greatest moments because that night I remember going home and looking in the mirror and having a full blown alcohol conversation with myself in the mirror. And I realized I was not a good person, man. I, I had taught myself to work hard. I had taught myself to make money, but my character was just broke. I couldn't hold a relationship. I, I treated women like dirt. I was a monster in, in relationships. And I remember having an out loud conversation with myself and saying, okay, you had the money and this is the person you still were. Now you're broke. Who do you want to be? What do you want to be going forward? And I realized that Money doesn't make your character. Your character is who you are, regardless of how much money you have. And so for me, it became a journey of not only am I going to make all this money back, but more importantly, I am going to have a great character going forward. Okay. I know during some time you made money again and you took six months off. How was that six months? I know you taking time off is not how other people take time off. All I did was immerse myself the markets, studying. And so all I did, man, was I went to the gym, studied the stock market for five years, man. I didn't buy anything new. 
no, no, probably more than your listeners will know. I didn't buy any new underwear. I didn't buy any new socks. I didn't buy any new t-shirts. Every dime I had, I was pouring into the stock market because I had taught myself the game and it is a game that became how I knew I was going to make my money back for five years. I didn't buy anything new, but yeah, I took six months off and I just immersed myself in, in business, working out business, working out no relationship. I, I needed to figure out who do I want to be? You can't love someone else until you figure out how to love yourself first. That became the driver for me is no distractions, study, figure out who you want to be, and then we'll get back on track. At the end of the six months, what happened? Man, I ended up getting a job at a, a place called Insperity where they did benefits and payroll for companies. And I remember I sold the service to a gentleman who owned a software company. It took me like 17 months to close this guy. But again, consistency. That's what I figured out. Okay, I'll just be consistent. Keep following up. Boom, boom, boom. What ended up happening, like 30 days after I closed him and he signed on for the service, he calls me up and he says, hey, you should come work for me. And I remember, maybe I was 37, 36, 37 at the time. And I remember saying, man, you're in software. It's a young person's game. I don't know anything about software. And he said, yeah, but you know how to sell and you know how to follow up. He said, you know, we need that component within the company. And they had never had that before. So I literally went and worked for him. And I started as the lowest paid employee. I used to make my calls out of a storage closet uh, to close people. And again, self-talk. I didn't even know what I was selling when I got there. So I would call competitors and listen to their pitch and see what they were doing. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. All right, fine. And so I just, I, I kept calling, looking for my yeses. Man, I'll, I'll fast forward. I started there. There were 13 of us. I was the lowest paid person. I sat on a fold out metal chair in the storage closet. And within a two-year, two-and-a-half-year time period, I became the president of the software company. We grew that company to over well over 100 people, and we had offices in Austin, Dallas, Houston, and Monterey, Mexico. And I'm very proud of what we accomplished, and this is very important. No one person ever achieves success in business. It's not, it's not a one-person thing. It was a, a true team effort of what we accomplished over there. But it was a phenomenal run, a phenomenal ride. And, I, man, that was that was a great opportunity. But, again, man, I started as the lowest paid person and, and kept working. What was lowest paid? Oh, man. So, so you had the software engineers all making six figures. You know, we're in Austin. So you had all the software engineers making six figures. I came in, I was making 50 grand a year plus commission. So it took me a while. What, what I was most impressed with, uh, with myself and proud of is the company had, we, we had never done over $3 million before in, in revenue. Within my first nine months, I remember I closed 1.9 million in in business on something that I did not know. Man, to this day, I can't write code. I, I can't tell you .NET from connect the dots. I, you know, I, but I've got a lot of love for for software engineers because I understood enough to ask questions to understand what I was selling, how to sell it. And, and that if I would share something with your audience, that's an important piece, man. I always ask questions. You know, it's like I said earlier, worst thing you can tell me is no. But 
you don't know if you don't ask. I will never live a what if life, man. I'm not going to say, oh, what if I would have done this? What if I would have? No, no, no. Go do it. That way, you know for sure, and you never have any doubts. You never have any wonder. If you want to ask, go ask. The worst that can happen is someone says no. Maybe they say F no, but it's still no. I live by that. Always ask questions. You can ask for everything. Your company was known to be one of the top companies in the state of Texas to work for several years in a row, and every year it moved up on the list. How'd you sort of do that? I've worked under MBAs, and some of them were... You're like, would you learn? Because you're a terrible manager. How'd you end up being a good manager without having the formal education? You know, I, I'll say this to anyone, man. Uh, leadership, I don't care what letters you have in front of your name. I don't care what letters you have in your name. What I mean by that, you can be a doctor, you can be the honorable judge, such and such. And then after your name, you can be CEO, MBA, PhD, ESQ. Letters don't make you a leader. Those are all roles, titles, and credentials. Leadership is truly in service of. How are you serving the organization? You know, fast forward a little bit here at, at Scribe. If you go to our website, man, go to the bottom of the page. That's where I am. But if you go to 98%, 99% of all company websites and you go to the About Us page and you look for the leadership team, at the top of the page, CEOs, founders, chairmen, they're all at the top of the page. My belief is if you are in leadership, your role is to serve. So you should be at the bottom of the page because you're serving all of those individuals who are actually doing all the work. So I'm a big service person. I believe that it's all about people. You put people first. And at the end of the day, you do this. People, process, profits. That's the order of operation that, that I work in. You put people first, build great process, make great profits. So it, it really came down to living by our values, you know, putting a culture together that was really focused on people first. Now, you were there at the software company for about five years. How did the opportunity at Scribe come? And it was book in a box, right? Yeah, Before it was that. book in a box at the time. So I was at the software company. And again, you know, I wasn't passionate about software code, but I, I love business. I, I love company growth. I love scale. I was on a plane one day and I, at the time I only had two children, but we hit a lot of turbulence and it hit me. I was like, oh man, if something happened to me, my children wouldn't know where I come from. They wouldn't know that to this day, I don't know where my last name comes from. You know, my mother got the name in the orphanage. I still have this name that I have no clue where it comes from. And I said, how do I document for my children, where I come from. So I reached out to my LinkedIn network. I said, does anyone know anybody that can help me write a book? I got introduced to the co-founder, uh, one of the co-founders, Tucker. Tucker comes over to my office. I'm at the software company and we're, we're in the conference room. We're at this big ass conference table and we're wrapping up. He's like, man, you got a great book, blah, blah, blah. So I decided I was going to do my book with this company, which was Book in a Box. And they were a little over a year old at the time. We're wrapping up and Tucker says to me, he said, hey, man, you've built a great company here. And I said to him what I just said, no one person builds a great company. I didn't build this. It was a team of people that built this. He said, would you give me feedback on our process as you go through it to do my book? Long story short, man, I was giving him feedback. And then Tucker said, hey, would you sit on our advisory board? I'm like, yeah, why not? He invited me to their executive meeting, sat in that meeting. Next thing I know, myself, Zach and Tucker at Starbucks, and they're like, hey, you want to be CEO? We'll give you equity. We'll give you, you know, can you come do it? And I said, man, I've been the, the president of a software company, can't write code. 
may as well be the CEO of a publishing company that can't spell. So, so here I am, man. Okay. So you've done really well at both companies because without funding, you've really taken the company to the next level, like no debt, all that. How do you sort of do that? Man, I, I don't mess around with, and, and I know I'm probably going to piss off a lot of people when I say this. Actually, I just did a LinkedIn piece on this. In my opinion, VC-backed companies, lottery winners, and athletes all have something in common. They come into a lot of money very quickly, and they don't know what to do with it. See, if you've never had, if you've never had a budget two thousand dollars each month, the hell are you going to budget twenty million dollars all at once? I'm a big, big believer. Look at the companies now, man. WeWork, Uber, Lyft, Peloton, all these companies. No profit. No profit, man. So I don't deal in nonprofit. Right? That word even hurts me to say nonprofit. I only deal in profit. So the top and the bottom line matter to me. I'm very proud of the fact that we're five years old. No debt, no loans, no VC money, no private equity. You can't find too many five-year-old companies that can say that. And equally, the software company was the same way. We didn't have any outside money over there as well. I believe in profits, not, you know, oh, how many users do you have? How many subscribers do you have? What's your top line revenue? I don't deal in gross and top line. I deal in net. What's the net profit? How much, how much are we keeping? I just don't do the VC series ABCD EFG game. That, that it's not appealing to me. I know that you have no regrets in your life because it has made you who you are. So I'm going to ask this question differently. If you went back at 18, you're 18 years old again. What are you doing in this day and age with this technology? What are you doing to sort of move up? and do what you want to do? I'm going to start with character, man. If I go back, I don't have any regrets, but I do have remorse. I, I was not a good person in those relationships. I did not uh, always treat women well. I would start there with my character. That would have done a lot for me along the way. So I'll start there. Second to that, oh man, you know, it's so hard to say the sky's the limit now. Man, when I, when I look at now, um, I, I'm going to hit hard on this one. When I taught myself investing, there was the Wall Street Journal, the Investor's Business Daily, but they were newspapers. Now, man, everything's on the internet. You could literally learn things overnight. And so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piss some people off on this one. Stop binge watching the damn Game of Thrones and start studying investments, start studying growth, scale, leadership, man. I don't care that you watch the whole damn se season of the Game of Thrones over the weekend. What do you have to show for it now? Stop taking pictures of your food and posting it because nobody gives a damn what, what you ate at lunch. If you think about this, man, think about how much time, because you know everyone does it. You take a picture of your food, then you look at it, and you know you got to take two or three pictures because the first one's never work. Then you got to upload it. Then you're sitting there and you know damn well, now you're checking your phone. How many likes did I get? How many comments did I get? Think of the time and effort you're putting into that that you could be putting into studying scale, leadership, growth, investing. I've never heard someone say to me, oh yeah, we binge studied our 401k all weekend. I've never heard that. But I've heard a ton of people say they binge watched a show, which I'm offended that binge watching is even a damn term in our society. Or, or this one, man. How many people have stood in line overnight, 24 hours to get the new iPhone? Why? 
Why? It does two new things that the phone that you have already does, but you stood in line. And here's the bad part of it, man. We have the audacity as a society to celebrate the person who's the first one out of the store who bought the iPhone. And I'm like, why are we celebrating that? Big damn deal. You, you're the first one with an iPhone out of the store. What do you get? You got a phone that you had to pay for. And I'll add on, thanks to your email list, the number is 135 minutes, the average amount of time that someone spends on social media. And if you think about it, even if you cut it in half, an hour a day, you can do so much. An hour a day, man. So you asked me going back, I actually feel, I, I don't have any regrets or anything, but man, if I could go back at 18 and have at my fingertips what people have at their fingertips now, where you can learn, reach out to people, think about it. You can email people now. You can connect with people over LinkedIn, ask questions. I get people ask me questions all the time, and they're shocked when I respond. And they're like, oh, my goodness, I got to imagine you're, you're so busy. But if you're going to take the effort to eat time and effort to email me, I'm going to take the time and effort to respond. Because, again, it goes back to what my dad taught me. Be kind, show respect, and say hello to everyone. I don't care how much success ever comes a person's way. Don't forget where you came from. And that's why I keep that uh, rent receipt on my desk. The last question, there was this one moment you were in a boardroom with a bunch of MBAs and they were asking you, because you know, you're so successful. People just assume you, you must have went to college. You must have some formal education. How did that feel? And like, you know, what do you take out of that? Man, I was, I remember the moment I was so intimidated because they were asking me, you know, where'd you get your MBA? Where'd you get your, and, and, and I would try to sidestep the question and start talking about something else or bring up a different investment topic, but they kept hammering at it. I was so paranoid, man. And I remember I had on my, my suit, my Ferragamo shoes. I, I had the look and I had the knowledge to be able to be in that room, but I did not have what they seemed to covet, which were the academic credentials. So at the time, it was very intimidating. And they asked you specifically which Ivy League. Did they say which school you went to? They say which Ivy League did you go which, to? Which Ivy? You know, what would, and I'm like, uh. And fortunately, someone came in the room and they're like, oh, that's uh, such and such as guy and my mentor. And they said everything just went away. Everybody was like, oh, shit, okay, if that, that's his mentor, we, we don't need to, to press anymore. But man, I was paranoid. I was sweating. My, my back was sweating. I'm like, oh, okay, how am I going to get through this? But here's what I've learned, man. And I, and I didn't know this until I got back. My co-founder said this to me, and, and he went to the University of Chicago and Duke Law School. So he's got all those damn credentials. And he said to me, he goes, look, people are more intimidated by you then you are by them because you have accomplished what you've done without those academic credentials. Whereas other people wonder, okay, did my degree just get me in here? Did my reference that my dad was a legacy get me in here? Did the fact that I come from a certain background get me in here? They said, but when people know your background, they know that you actually know something because you've accomplished what, what you've done. And that really changed the game for me, man. No one had ever told me that. And more importantly, he also shared this with me, and it was a pivotal moment for me, very pivotal. No one in, in 45 years had ever told me that I was smart. He said to me, he goes, man, you are one of the fastest learners I have ever met. 
that stuck with me, man, so strong because for 45 years, here I am thinking I'm struggling. I don't have these academic credentials. I can't spell. But when he said I was a fast learner, man, that sometimes all it takes is someone saying a key phrase to you. And if you look from the very beginning of this conversation, my life has been based on certain key phrases or things that people have done that have taken me to the the next level or given me that springboard to really see. Oh, and and when I think about it, man, it's it's true. I read excruciatingly slow, man. But if I listen to an audio book, oh man, if I hear it, I'll retain it. So everything that I do, there's a joke here. CEO of a publishing company, man, I've not read. I listen to them on on audio (laughs) books because I can retain them. I'm going to keep on Uncle Bobby time. I only got a few minutes left with you. I would encourage readers to read the book I got there, your book, amazing book. And you know, you've only touched on a small part of your overall life. And I think it's a really intense book that a lot of people get out. How does someone, I'm signed up to your email list. How does someone sign up to your email list? You can go to uh, jtmccormick.com. That, that's my website. Also, the you know the big place where I put out a lot of content is on LinkedIn. Every, every Tuesday, I'll, I'll put out a post, but then I'll also put out the long form on that email list. So you can go to jtmccormick.com, get signed up. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me at scribemedia.com. Not hard to find me, man. Like I said, I respond. Cool. So thank you so much for sharing your life experiences. I know anybody from any walk of life can really get value out of that. So thank you for your time. And I hope the listeners to get as much value out of this episode as I did. Sincerely appreciate it. No matter how many podcasts I do, I'm humbled and flattered that people will take the time to actually listen to my story or even have me on. So man, I I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you so much and have a good one. Take care. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information is valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think this show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated, and we'll go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect, or follow me on LinkedIn at Janide Iqbal. Spelled J-O-N-A-E-D. Last name, I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem. Nodegree.com. Yeah, Talk to so me. you got no degree? No problem. No problem. Any problem, we can solve We them. got this. LinkedIn insomnia. Keeps us evolving, growing in the knowing, wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing, the wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing, the wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah.